you got your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 2 today. That's where we'll be uh, settling in to study together God's amazing Word. We're going to be passing out note sheets and pencils, of course. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Otherwise, we're going to assume that you can uh, look it up on your phone or you can read the Bible that you brought. But if you need a Bible, let us know and we would be glad to provide one for you. We've been uh, preaching and learning out of the English Standard Version, uh, but there are many faithful versions, so don't feel that you have to have that version, but that is what we will be preaching out of uh, this morning. Appreciate you all praying for me as we were on vacation uh, this past weekend. We had a good Labor Day, despite the fact that uh, I spent about 12 hours trying to fix my van after it broke down halfway through the trip, but we were in a good place, and... uh, Thankfully, my uncle has a lot of tools, so <laughs> we were able to salvage the trip, and the Lord was, was good. We even got to church that Sunday, so despite the fact that our van broke down. So thank you for praying for us and uh, for uh, letting us take that time away for our family. Grateful to have Pastor Paul and other faithful elders here who can preach in my absence. And uh, I've already watched Paul's sermon. It's really good, and grateful that he was willing to come and, uh, and use his gifts for the Lord's blessing as well. So we've got our Bibles open to Galatians chapter 2, but before we read this week's text, I want to remind you of the things that our own pastor Paul faithfully preached last week in the closing verses of chapter 1. The verses that we study today are going to build upon the verses that you learned from last week. And the Apostle Paul is going to be opening chapter 2 by saying, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So he begins chapter 2 by pointing back to some of the things he spoke of in chapter 1. Very quickly, let's remember what happened in those 14 years that he mentions. Has Paul been in Jerusalem this whole time? Not primarily. Paul has not been ministering in Jerusalem. Though the the core of the church was was, um, established there, and though many of the apostles were spending time in Jerusalem, Paul himself was not ministering very much in that region at all. Last week... Pastor Paul described how a very short time after the crucifixion of Jesus, the Apostle Paul was actively persecuting the church in and around Judea. He was a vocal enemy of the gospel. He wanted to stop this movement of people that were following what they claimed was the Messiah, but what Saul believed was an an imposter. And then around 34 A.D., As Acts chapter 9 records, Jesus interrupted Paul's life as he traveled on the road to a place called Damascus, that little community in the middle of the screen on your your right side. As he traveled to Damascus, to the north of Jerusalem and Judea, Jesus interrupted Paul, declared that he was in fact the one that Israel had been waiting for, the true Son of God, sent by the Father, that Israel had received her long-awaited true King. Last week, Galatians 1.17 told us that for three years after his conversion, Paul went to stay in Arabia. Now, if you look at the map there again, um, that we just had up on the screen, we'll put it up, up for you one more time, you'll see that the regions are denoted by a square box, and the cities are just titles with a small dot next to them. Arabia, uh, Patria, was to the north of Judea and was an area where Paul secluded himself to preach the gospel, and to continue to receive the revelation of what the true gospel was from Jesus Christ through the word, through miraculous means. We're not told exactly how, but for those three years, God prepared him for the ministry that he would embark upon. We learned in last week's verses that Paul did not stay with the other apostles. He didn't get his training from them. 
He only traveled to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James for a couple of weeks, probably in about 37 A.D. And then Paul left Jerusalem and returned to the northernward area that was just on that map of Syria and Cilicia, where he continued his preaching and teaching for several years. Now, during that time, Paul was not known personally by the believers who were down by Jerusalem in the area of Judea, but his reputation began to, to find its way to them. They heard of the powerful work that he was doing, and they glorified God for saving a former enemy of the church and using him to preach the gospel and lead other people to Christ. So remember that one of the main ideas communicated by last week's text was that Paul the Apostle did not get the true gospel from Peter. He didn't receive it from John or from James or from any of the other apostles. He received it directly from Jesus. He was not a B-list apostle, as some of his opponents would like to have the church in Galatia believe. That was so important for him to speak to them because there were these opponents that were trying to argue that Paul was not a real apostle, that he was a secondary apostle, and that his gospel was not the full gospel of the Lord. So as we begin chapter 2, Paul's going to interact again with those other apostles. And this time, the gospel he is preaching will be examined by those apostles in Jerusalem. Will it be the same gospel that those apostles are preaching? Will they find that Paul is not demanding enough of the Jews and the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus through his preaching? These questions will be answered by our text today in Galatians chapter one, starting, or chapter 2, starting with verse 1 and reading through to verse 5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, or had not run, in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Let's take a moment and ask the Lord to settle our hearts on this passage and to give us what we need to see so that we might follow Him in obedience with joy. God, we praise You for the Word. We know that it has power. God, every bit of what You have revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture are essential to our training, to our raising up as disciples. Lord, help us to follow you with greater zeal. As we learn about this early church and the challenges they faced, I pray that you would help us to see how these same challenges often face your church in the modern day. And I pray, God, that the example of the Apostle Paul would ring clear to us, that we would see just where his gospel came from and how it was exactly the same gospel that you gave to Peter and James, and John, and the other apostles. Lord, may your church be unified in the word, and we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So after preaching for many years in the region north of Jerusalem and Judea, Paul went back up to Jerusalem around 47 AD. Now just a little side note. In the scripture, it says often that somebody went up to Jerusalem or went down from Jerusalem. Don't think in terms of north and south when you hear that that direction or instruction. 
Because Jerusalem was built on a high plateau, and because it had an exalted place in the Hebrew culture as the city of David, the city of promise, the Hebrews would often say they were going up to Jerusalem, no matter whether they were coming from the north or the south or the east or west. You were always going up to Jerusalem, and you're always going down from Jerusalem when you left that place. So when Paul went up into Jerusalem, he was literally coming from the north down to the south, but he was going up to Jerusalem because of its exalted status. Verse 2 tells us that what prompted this visit to Jerusalem was, did you pick up on it? A revelation. It was a revelation from God. Apparently there was a prophetic word from the Lord that prompted this trip that, that Paul and his companions took to Jerusalem to speak with the other apostles. We can read of it in Acts chapter 11. So if you'd like to turn in your scripture to Acts chapter 11, um, you could follow along, or if you'd rather look at the screen, we're going to have these verses uh, displayed for you. But Acts chapter 11, verse 25, says this. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. It's a Syrian Antioch, which was eastward of the other Antioch we spoke about a few weeks ago. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Again, they're coming down from the high place of Jerusalem to the north to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now if you look at the timeline that I provided for you in your notes there, you're going to see that there were three separate visits that Paul made to Jerusalem in his early ministry to the Lord. And in these visits... He had various interactions with the other apostles. Paul preached last week about that first visit, which was a very brief visit. We know that here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's referring to his second visit because it is the visit that was prompted by a prophetic revelation, not to Paul himself, but to a man named Agabus. <clears throat> we can also be confident that the Galatians chapter 2 story we're reading today is referring to Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter, 15, uh, chapter 11, and not his third visit, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, because something very important and major happened in Acts chapter 15, something that would have been very relevant to his discussion with the Galatians. The Jerusalem council happened in Acts chapter 15 during Paul's third recorded visit to Jerusalem. If Paul had already attended the Jerusalem council, that would have that would convene and settle the, the controversy over whether uh, new believers who were Gentiles had to be circumcised and converted to Judaism as, long, as well as Christianity. If that had already happened, there's no doubt that Paul would have brought up that ruling. But he doesn't bring up that ruling here in his argument against his opponents because it hasn't happened yet. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 likely happened a couple of months after Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian church. So he only mentions the meeting that he had in his second visit to Jerusalem, with a certain influential pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 11 account only records that Barnabas and Paul came to give relief, to give an offering from the other churches in the north.
But we learn here in Galatians chapter 2 that the Lord used that meeting for some additional important purposes as well. The fact that Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation indicates that Paul did not go to Jerusalem because he was summoned there by superior apostles. Now, his opponents often tried to claim that Paul was not as important as Peter or John, and so it's good for us to see that Paul went to Jerusalem in the second, uh, second trip because the Lord had prompted this, this movement. The Lord had prompted the churches in the north to send relief to Jerusalem in anticipation of this great famine. God wanted him to go and meet with these apostles. It wasn't the apostles who ordered him to show up and give an account of himself. He went by the prompting of the Lord, of the, Lord the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a supporter of God's church, and God's church in Jerusalem were in for some hard times, according to this revelation that Agabus had received. So Paul was involved with providing that relief for them. Galatians chapter 2 tells us that Paul does not take his journey alone. In addition to Barnabas, that Acts records went with him, we also see that Titus was with him. Now, each of those individuals is an important party to the events that are going to unfold in these five verses we're studying today. Barnabas was a fully Jewish believer who had an established reputation among the earliest church. The people in Jerusalem didn't know Paul personally, but they did know Barnabas very well. His nickname meant son of encouragement, for he worked to lift up the spirits of the brethren, and he was a faithful witness to the gospel wherever he went. His word meant something to the early church. And so his presence likely served to balance some of the edges that Paul, no doubt, brought to the conversation about what the true gospel really was about. Barnabas has stood and he has vouched for Paul in the earliest days of his turning toward Christ, and so it was fitting that Paul would bring his faithful advocate with him in this time of testing. He also brings with him this man, Titus, who loves the Lord Jesus the same way Barnabas does, but who is culturally a very different person. Titus was a man who put his full faith in Jesus Christ, but he was not a man of Jewish lineage. Titus was a faithful Gentile, who is serving as a preacher of the gospel. He was led to the Lord by Paul's preaching, and he becomes like a son to Paul, eventually serving as an elder in the church founded in Crete. But at this time, his faith in Christ would really force the apostles to evaluate their stance on the law. Would Titus' faith in Jesus be enough to consider him a saved man? Or would Titus need to take on the law of Moses in order to truly experience redemption. So it's very wise and strategic of Paul to have brought these two very different friends to be representatives as they come and show their gospel to these other apostles in Jerusalem so they might decide whether they were saved under the same circumstances, under the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Personal testimony, by the way, is not everything. You'll find many people who will give you heartfelt testimonies of how Allah has changed their life or how Buddha has impacted their being. Personal testimony is not the end-all, be-all of truth. The scripture is the end-all, be-all of truth. It is what governs what is right and what is wrong, what is true according to the Lord God. But God can use the testimony of individuals whose lives have been transformed by that true gospel represented in the scripture to really reinforce the reality that God can transform lives and can make new. What was once dead can be made alive in Christ Jesus. And so the testimonies of Titus 
and Barnabas are going to speak to the validity of Paul's gospel. The testimony of, of Titus and Barnabas are essential uh, to the things that they want to accomplish as they present the truth to these fellowship of saints in Jerusalem. So these three men journeyed to Jerusalem, and once the relief offering is delivered, Paul and Barnabas and Titus meet privately with the pillars of the church to present the substance of Paul's gospel to them so that they might decide for themselves whether this version of the gospel was corrupt, whether it was unauthorized, whether it was insufficient, so that Paul's gospel would be put to the test by those who walked most closely to Jesus during his time on the earth. Now, in visiting the apostles in Jerusalem, an important question had to be answered. Is the gospel, <clears throat> is the gospel that Paul, the former Pharisee, was preaching... Is this the same gospel that the other established apostles were also preaching and teaching in Jerusalem? Remember that the Galatians to whom Paul writes this letter were being told by false teachers that Paul was not a real apostle, that his gospel fell short of being the true gospel. So by showing that his gospel had already been examined by the most trusted men in the whole world of truth, Paul seeks to put to rest this argument that the gospel that he was preaching was not enough. That is the test that we're examining today in verses 1 through 5. And the greatest potential variable, as Pastor Paul pointed out last week, was this. Is a follower of Jesus saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Or is a follower of Jesus saved by grace and by keeping the Old Testament law? Circumcision served as a symbolic commitment to keeping the entirety of the law. And so it's going to become a, a big player in this debate, in this argument back and forth about whether or not grace was enough, whether or not grace was sufficient, or whether these men who claim to be following Jesus truly needed to embrace all of Judaism as well as Jesus Christ in order to be redeemed. Paul was some 250 miles removed from the church in Jerusalem as he preached most days. Paul was aggressively witnessing to Gentiles. Though he had been a Pharisee and the law had at one point meant everything to him, his association with the Gentiles and detachment from the original apostles caused his opponents to consider him a radical. These men who claimed that Paul's gospel fell short would likely look to disciples like John and Peter and James to overrule Paul and to pull rank against him. But if these men endorsed Paul, then he would be able to demonstrate that the one true gospel was not a gospel of grace plus works. So there was a, a lot at stake here as this meeting convenes uh, that is described in, in small part here in Galatians chapter 2. First of all, Paul's ministry up to that point was at stake. Everything that Paul had preached and done to this point was done out of a love for the gospel of salvation by grace alone. If Peter and James and these other respected apostles were to examine Paul's gospel and conclude that it was missing an important element, if they were to have declared that circumcision was necessary and that grace was only effective for those who keep the laws of Moses, then that would have meant anyone who hoped to be saved by Jesus would have to adhere to the law and live as a cultural Jew to be saved. And if one had to adhere to the law to be saved, then salvation would have not been by grace alone. Paul would have founded his entire ministry on a radical truth that wasn't, in fact, true, 
if these apostles had said that his gospel was incomplete. All of his preaching hinged on the idea that Jesus Christ, in, the, in coming to the material world and taking on a human physical body, had done what no one else could do. Jesus had fulfilled the law. He had walked in the face of temptation. He'd experienced the limitations of human flesh. And yet in every turn, at every opportunity, he had said no to the lies of the enemy. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And all of Israel to that point had proven time and time again that no matter how hard men try, they will never be able to uphold the law of Moses flawlessly. Without fail, we fail. Without exception, every man falls short of the glory of God. We will transgress God's commands. Jesus fulfilled the law so that as the perfect and spotless sacrifice, he could give his own life on the cross as a substitute for our broken lives. He could pay the legal penalty that we owe to God for our sins and wash our record away. And that's what Paul preached. He preached it in the synagogues. He preached it in the marketplace. He preached it to the brothers every Lord's Day when he gathered together with them. But if faith in Jesus Christ was not enough, if that was only half of the good news, then what, what that would mean to Paul is that everything he had worked to accomplish had fallen short. It was all vanity. All his preaching would have been meaningless. The churches that he founded would need to be retaught. The men that he discipled and mentored would have to be re-educated. If the true gospel was grace plus works, then his whole ministry would unravel at the seams. And so there is so much writing on this ruling in Jerusalem. The validity of Paul's ministry was at stake, but something even more important was at stake in that meeting. The spiritual freedom of every believer was at stake. Did you know that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, that you are a slave to your sin? There is a reason that Paul preached a gospel that was Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Because he knew that if we had to contribute anything to our own redemption, that we would never be able to afford such a price. Only Jesus Christ could save us from our sin. John 8.34 Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. How does that rest with you, Americans? How does it feel to hear from the very mouth of God's Son that the practice of sin, which everyone is guilty of, is an undeniable indicator that a person is not in fact free, but is a slave? From time to time, I have to conduct funeral services. And sometimes those funerals are for people who did not believe in Jesus Christ, for people who lived their whole life <clears throat> independent of His rule, so far as they know in their mind. And it is shocking to me how frequently in those funerals a family member will come to me and say, the one song that that person would like to have played at their funeral is very special to them. It's a Frank Sinatra song called My Way. How many of you heard that song before? Raise your hand if you've heard that Frank Sinatra song. If you heard the tune, you'd probably pick up on it. Uh, it's the crooning voice of Frank Sinatra, and he starts off, 
And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Okay, I'm not going to sing the whole thing for you. I'm not going to do it, okay? But you've probably heard that tune. It goes on to say, my friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case in which I'm certain. Such confidence. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. I don't know how many times people have said, I want this played at my loved one's funeral. <clears throat> it's basically an anthem to man trying to live their lives independent from a God who would rule over them. To say that I live my life my way, not according to anybody else's rules or regulations, that I walked my own path, that I chose my own way, is a great confession of the heart of sinful man. My way is basically sung from the perspective of a person whose life is winding down, the end is near, and life hasn't been perfect, there have been rocky roads, but at least that person got to be independent and do everything they wanted to do by their own rules. And that appeals to people, doesn't it, friends? It sounds great to say you did it your way, that no one was your boss, that no one was able to tell you no. But how do you think that song would play? If you were to get to the end of your life, the life that God Almighty provided for you, the life that you lived in His world that He created with His own words, the life that you lived with His breath of vitality in your lungs, bearing His image, how do you think that song will play if you get to the end of your story and you stand before the judge and he asks you why he should let you into his heaven? And you said, because God... I did it all my way. How do you think that's going to play before the creator of the heavens and the earth? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You and I haven't got the power to rule our own hearts in any kind of a righteous way. Without the grace that Jesus provides to us, you cannot break free from sin. You cannot know the Lord. No matter which way you choose, if your way is not Christ, you will not find a right relationship with God the Father. And that is why your only hope for freedom is not your own works, it is not your own way, it is not your own efforts or righteousness. It is the grace that Jesus is willing to freely give you his own personal righteousness. John 8, verses 31 through 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth that he's speaking there is not the law, because the law shows us that we are sinners. It doesn't set us free. It creates boundaries. It, it is a prison for us. The truth that he's speaking of here is the gospel truth that by his grace alone, those who trust in his work, that he would accomplish on that hill at Calvary would be set free from the obligation to pay for their own sins, which they deserve to pay to God. The truth that we must trust is this. We cannot save ourselves, friends. 
And though we have done nothing to earn our place in heaven, God, by His own great love, has lived a life and died a death that can count for us. If my place in heaven is contingent in my work, if it's contingent on me keeping the law, I am a condemned man because I have tried to do it my way and I have tried to live apart from God and I am guilty of treason against Him. I'm still a slave to my own sin if I am trusting in my own works to do what only Jesus Christ can do. To trust in the free grace of the Son of God is an enormous relief, friends. There is so much freedom when we come to that place in our lives when we understand once and for all that I don't have to impress God to get into His heaven. That I don't have to undo all the bad things that I did to have a right relationship with Him. Do you know how much freedom that gives to me? Do you know how much ease and comfort I have knowing that every wrong thing that I have ever done was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ? That His blood that flowed out of His wounds washed clean my iniquity. I do not have to prove to God that I am something that I am not. I simply have to stand and receive the grace that God has given to me through Christ as He makes me something that God intends me to be. To be free from the law does not mean that the law is irrelevant now and that we can do whatever we want, but it means we have been freed from the responsibility of paying our own debt. A person living under the burden of works must constantly walk through life with a question hanging over their head, have I been good enough? Have I been faithful enough? Is there more that I need to do? Is God pleased with me? That question has already been answered for us. It's answered like this. First of all, we can never do what is enough. So no, we have not done enough. No, we have not been pleasing to God with our works. No, we have not satisfied the wrath of God with our half-hearted attempts at obedience and righteousness. But the second answer of that is also a beautiful answer. What the Son of God did for us is more than enough to atone for our sins. So I don't have to worry about it anymore. God has declared His love for me, not because of what I have done to please Him, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross to please His just desire for righteousness. So there is a tremendous amount at stake in this meeting, friends. Verses 4 through 5 indicate that among the pillars who heard this testimony were some false brothers who had come for the express purpose of trying to sway the true apostles and to demand some kind of a hybrid salvation. A salvation that, yes, depends on the grace of God and the gift that He gave of His life, but that also insists that one who would be saved must find themselves under the law of Moses again, living by the restrictions and the regulations that were required of the Hebrew people. Verse 4, again, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, by, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Whenever someone tries to add to the work of Jesus Christ by demanding that you must do some portion of the work in order to deserve His grace, that the person, that person who is trying to add to the work of Jesus is subtly trying to strip you of the freedoms that Christ has won from you, for you. 
He's trying to strip you of your freedom. He's trying to place you under the burden again, the yoke of slavery that you used to live under as a rebel to God. False gospels, as the one that was threatening to poison the minds and hearts of the Galatian churches, false gospels produce false brothers. They produce people that speak much of the same language of Christianity, but who take the very heart and soul of salvation and they alter it. They twist it and distort it. They add to it or they subtract to it in such a way that it is corrupted. And these individuals try to extend the hand of fellowship to you, but the Jesus they're preaching you is a different Jesus than the Jesus of Scripture. To them, the false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. How did Paul and his companions deal with this dangerous opposition? They stood firm in what they knew to be true, and what they knew to be true was all that Christ had revealed to them through Paul. So these three men, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, stood before the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, and they shared with complete transparency about the good news they had been preaching in Sicilia and in Syria, the good news of salvation by faith, in Jesus Christ. And though there were wolves in sheep's clothing there, trying to no doubt question and challenge the validity of that gospel, these men refused to yield an inch when it came to that important, essential truth. Anyone who desired to redeem, who desires a redeemed relationship with God, will only attain it through the work of Jesus Christ and never by their own obedience or devotion. And I want us to take a second now to please consider this man, Titus, and to consider how he felt standing there or sitting there before this council of important men. This man, Titus, who was surrounded by Jewish men, men of heritage who could draw their lineage all the way back to their fathers, the fathers of the Old Testament, the men who knew which tribe they descended from, who could point to geographical, physical Israel and say, my family's got a claim there. Titus had heard the gospel and responded in faith, even though it was culturally contrary to what he had grown up with. Even though it would be entirely new to him to follow this Jesus, who is the Son of a God that he did not grow up worshiping. The Holy Spirit revealed to his heart that it was true, that he needed Jesus Christ to be his King, and he had yielded to Jesus Christ. He had put his full faith in the Son of God, though it wasn't his culture. No matter what arguments were made against Paul and his gospel of grace, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The Holy Spirit inside of Titus did not grieve him with a heavy conscience of guilt so that he might decide, you know what, I I really do need to be circumcised. I need to place myself back under this burden of Moses' law. To the contrary, he felt no urge to follow the law of these Judaizers who were trying to sway the church's opinion of the true gospel. As he sat there and listened to reputable Jewish men suggest that his place before God was counterfeit because he had not yet been circumcised, he stood firm knowing that he was saved by the power of Jesus Christ's grace. Any arguments that proposed the gospel of Paul to be incomplete were entirely unconvincing. The false brothers failed to persuade the true brothers 
And as we will see next week, the trusted pillars embraced Paul and his preaching ministry, not adding anything to what he was preaching. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone was the heart of the true gospel. It's what Peter preached. It's what John preached. It's what, the, um, what James preached. And it's what Paul preached. Each of them having received it from Jesus himself. Church, we cannot be content to merely share the gospel of Jesus. We cannot be satisfied to only preach it. The gospel has also got to be defended, doesn't it? These false teachers who tried to infiltrate the church, these men who seemed to be brothers but were not brothers, that didn't end in the early church days. There are still threats to God's gospel today, to the integrity of what He has revealed to His people. And so, friends, we must be diligent ourselves to stand as Paul and Barnabas and Titus stood to be ready to describe the gospel with clarity to be ready to refute the twisting of the gospel. Our spiritual freedom is on the line. And while it is somewhat unlikely that you've been pressured to return to the law of Moses as a means of salvation, I doubt that anybody has come to you and said, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to take on the Torah. You've got to go to, to synagogue. You've got to offer your sacrifices. There will always be people who will try to return God's church to the yoke of slavery by insisting that Jesus needs some kind of an addition to make your salvation valid. That we must somehow keep a form of the law in order to be saved. Some people are preaching that, oh yes, you need Jesus, you need the grace of Jesus, but you also need to be ecumenical. You need to tolerate everybody in the world. We've just got to embrace every person who shows any kind of faith as wanting to be near to God. And so they, you know, they've, got, they've got some kind of belief there. You've got to embrace them too. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There will be some who say, yeah, you need Jesus. You need his grace. Of course you need that. But you also need to be a good patriot. You need to stand for your country. You need, you need to be a good American and a good Christian at the same time. Or else, what, what does Jesus have with you? Friends, I love my country. But I am not a citizen of the United States like I'm a citizen of heaven. And so we must put Jesus first and we must worship Jesus alone and not let anybody convince us that we need Jesus plus something else. Someone's going to come alongside you and say, you need Jesus, but you also need social justice. You need to make sure that you're a civil rights advocate and that you're doing everything that you can to make everybody equal here on earth. And those are good things. To work towards equality and to look after the oppressed. But friends, the gospel is about eternity. It's about something much greater than the world that we live in today. So don't let anyone with an agenda come into your life and say, yes, Jesus, but also this. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And if we do not champion this important truth, then someone, perhaps someone who looks like a brother, perhaps someone who has nothing to do with the gospel or with the, the scriptures, Someone will gladly come and plant seeds of doubt in your heart and mind and do whatever they can to get you to do to trust in your own power rather than the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must be ready to stand. We must be great, grateful for the fact that our standing in the Lord is all due to the powerful work of God's only Son.
Would you bow with me and have a word of prayer?